Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's focus for Saturday, March the 11th, 2023, at 11:12 a.m. Central Time. Today's focus, sex and hermeneutics. Today's focus is sex and hermeneutics. And if you've been paying attention to what's going on in the Christian world, you probably have an idea what this all relates to. But before I introduce it, before we dig into it in any way, shape, or form, I want you just to consider this. Right here in front of me, right, literally underneath the microphone on this table, I have a Bible. Right here, I have a Bible. And we all know that as individuals, whenever you pick up your Bible and you read it, there is going to be some level of interpretation going on. You're going to be reading it. And you're going to be trying to understand it. You're going to be trying to determine what it means. And, and we reference this idea of trying to interpret the Bible as hermeneutics, right? And you think in some ways, you may be, you, you may perceive it. You may kind of romanticize the whole concept, right? In other words, you may have this kind of a, a romantic notion that you just sit down with a cup of coffee, a Bible, a journal, and a pencil, and you just start reading the Bible and boom, 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 boom. You just, you can interpret it, interpret it, interpret it, and you just understand it. Almost like it's just this, you just read it, understand it, and it, and, and it makes perfect sense, and it's simple, and it's not complicated, and it's not difficult, and, and it's, it's just very straightforward. And I think there's, uh, in some ways, we kind of, we kind of sell it that way. I think sometimes within Christianity, I mean, we say things like this, you read the Bible and the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Well, okay. We, we, we sell it like it's just, you just, you just open your Bible and just start reading. You know, oh, you're a new believer. Just grab your Bible and start reading in the Gospel of John or, or start reading in Matthew or start reading in Genesis, wh wherever, you know, you're supposed to start reading. And, and basically, it's almost this idea. You can just read it and you will grasp it. You will understand it. But I don't think it's that simple. And I think that we really... I think we need to get rid of this romanticized idea that people just read it and 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 it's it's very simple because whether we like it or not, when you get ready to pick up your Bible and start reading, you're bringing a lot of things with you. You're bringing at least five things with you that can greatly impact how you interpret that text. You may not want to admit it. You may, you may want to deny it, but I'm sorry. It's, it's just not you, the Bible, a notebook, a pencil, and a cup of coffee, and this, you know, Hallmark movie kind of image. No, 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 no. You're sitting down with your Bible and you're bringing, you, because you are a part of this process, you're bringing a lot of things with you that in many cases completely hinders your ability to see what the text is actually saying. Let me give you at least five things you bring to the text every time you read it. Number one, you're bringing your past understanding. Any, any time, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've listened to sermons, you've attended Sunday school, small group, you've gone to church, you've heard preaching and teaching on text of scripture. 
And it's almost impossible for you to sit down and just start reading that text and not read it in light of your previous understanding, your past understanding. And I'm always warning people about this. I don't care how many times you've read the text. I don't care how many times you've studied the text. I don't care if you've got a closet full of 30 notebooks on the text itself. You you have to leave all of that alone. You cannot bring it to the text. And when I say that, people sometimes think I'm crazy, but I'm sorry. Past understanding basically prohibits new understanding. Past understanding typically locks you into seeing the text the same way over and over and over and over and over again, because you simply bring that past understanding to the text. I say this all the time. This is why I will never use past sermon notes. I try to never keep any sermon notes. I like to burn them, throw them in the trash, delete them, because if I keep them, then I'll have a tendency to revert back to it. That's why every if I if I make any notes in a Bible, at the end of the year, I get a new Bible because I don't want to see any notes. I don't want to see any underli- underlining, highlighting. I don't want to see anything. When I sit down to study the text in the present, I want to forget everything I've ever learned in the past. I don't care how many Bible colleges I've attended. I don't care how many seminaries I've attended. I don't care Bible institutes. I don't, I don't care about any of my theological degrees, any of my degrees in religious education. Education. I don't want to remember any of that when I look at the text, because if I do that, my past understanding will simply become my present understanding. And if there were any errors in the past, I will bring them with me into the present. But we do that. There's just no way to get around it. We bring our past understanding. We have to be aware of it and fight against it. Number two, now this is very, very, very important for today. We bring our past experiences, things you've experienced in your life, things you have gone through has a profound impact on how you see the text and how you interpret the text. Whether you can say, no, that's not true. It's true. Your past experience, when you look at the text, you're like, you bring it with you. It, you bring it into you. Uh, let, me get, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. For some reason, many Christians have no problem reading texts about, uh, you know, God being good, God being a help, a help in a time of need, God being a refuge, a shelter, God's, you know, all things are possible with God. He's going to take care of me. He's going to be there for me. He's going to help me. He's going to protect me. And many Christians have no problem reading that. And a lot of that is because of their past, maybe the way they grew up. They, they had a really, really good life. But I'll just be honest with you. Those kinds of texts bother me to no end. Because when I read those texts, I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is all powerful. God is all knowing. He's supposedly protector. Shall, you know, he's the shepherd. He's going to look after me. He's going to care for me. But where was God when I was being abused? Where was God when my mother died when I was young? Where, where was God when my father died of cancer? Like, I I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. Where was God? 
Where was my protector? Where was my fortress? Where was my rock? Where was my refuge? Where was my shelter? Where was this all powerful? And so that has a profound impact on how I read those texts. Look, you can be, you can be shocked. You can be horrified, but it's just the truth. Certain past experiences will always impact your present reading of the text. We'll, We'll talk more about that, but just understand that. So your past understanding has profound, in many cases, negative ramifications on your present understanding. Your past experiences, once again, can have profoundly negative impact on present understanding. The next thing you bring in, you bring in your feelings and emotions. And those feelings and emotions may be your present feelings and emotions. But your feelings at any moment can impact how you read the text and what you see in the text. And it can make you either want to avoid a text, not think about it because of something you're feeling, because of an emotion you are having. And it's hard sometimes to realize, am I looking at this text today through the current lens of my present emotions? And is this impacting the way I'm seeing this text? How are your feelings and emotions today impacting how you're seeing the text today? So number one, past understanding. Number two, past experiences. Number three, feelings and emotions. Number four, motivations and desires. Your motivation, your desire can greatly impact how you read the text. I've watched this take place countless times in my life, right? Typically it goes something like this. Someone will be struggling because they have this motivation and the desire that well, they have feelings and emotions. They're very, let's say they're very unhappy in their marriage. They're just, they're tired of it. They're unhappy. They're hurt, whatever the case. And so their motivation and the desire is they want out of it. They want out of it. They want to escape it as fast as possible. They're looking for the, they're looking for the escape hatch. They're ready to, to pull the ejection, ejection lever and be, take, get out of the plane. They want, they want to be gone. That's their motivation and desire. And so guess what? For some weird reason, when they read the scripture, now they think the scriptures will uh, allow them to do exactly what they want. Now, that's just one example I can think of. I could give you thousands of them. Your motivations and desire. So number one, your past understanding impacts your present understanding of the text. Your past experiences impacts your present understanding of the text. Your feelings and emotions impact your present understanding of the text. Your motivations and desires can greatly impact your present understanding of the text. And then number five, your theological allegiance. Your theological allegiance. If you are team reformed, well, then guess what? You got to make sure your interpretations are consistent with Reformed theology. If your team Arminian, you got to make sure if your team Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, whether we like it or not, there is an allegiance that is demanded that, hey, when we come to the text, you, you know how you're going to interpret it. You're going to interpret it in light of your theological allegiance. Hey, you believe in infant baptism? Well, uh, you... You better bet a hundred dollars, baby, that I'm going to find infants being baptized all over the Bible. I don't care if I have to go to, to circumcision and say circumcision replaced baptism. And it's eight, I don't care what I have to, I'm going to find it there, but I trust me, I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. 
If you want to believe that works are a part of salvation, um, you're going to find it. If you want to believe that works are not a part of salvation, you're going to find it. Look, whatever your theological allegiance, you have a tendency. That's what you find. And, And guess what? In many cases, the church church does not allow for any questioning of one's theological allegiance. Even the mirror, like, well, wait a minute. This text seems to, ah, how dare, no, 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 you're gone. I'm gone. I'm out of here. No, 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 I'm not going to put up with that. No, you, you have to, you have to toe the party line. There's no room for deviation. There's no room for question. Theological allegiance. In many cases, theological allegiance. Listen to me. Now, you're going to probably dismiss this, but I believe it's true. I think in many cases, theological allegiance trumps biblical hermeneutics. I really do. You could argue that's one of the problems with the the, the church. is because the church is all about allegiance to to a system, to a team, to a way. And you got to stay in line with that. Any deviation, problems ensue. So when it comes to hermeneutics, when it comes to hermeneutics, we bring this to the text. We, we have this romanticized version. We just, there I am just reading my Bible. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what Zephaniah meant. And oh, that's what Haggai meant. And oh, that's what Zechariah meant. And oh, and that, that's what Matthew meant. And oh, that, that's what, that's what Paul meant in Romans. And, and we, we just, it's not that simple. There are these hidden things that are right there with us. Our past understanding, our past experiences, our feelings and emotions, our motivations and desires, and our theological allegiance. And that impacts the way we read the text. That's the, that impacts how we interpret the text. We have to acknowledge that. Now, why am I mentioning all of that? Because recently, massive controversy erupted. Outrage. The Twitter universe was in an outrage. It was in, it was however you want to describe it. It was throwing a fit. It was all in a tizzy. It was throwing a, it was a hissy fit, whatever words you want to use. Now, I'm not trying to mock it, but everyday Christian, Christians on social media, the, the Twitterverse is always upset about something. I mean, we live in a perpetual state of outrage in our culture today. So sometimes you just kind of have to look at it. But in this particular case, some people were very upset, very disgusted, and very hurt. Now, if you remember, here's what happened. An art, well, an excerpt, well, an article was written basically, that was an excerpt from a book. And this article was posted on the Gospel Coalition website. And basically the, the, article's headlo- the article's title was something like, Sex Won't Save You, But It Points to the One Who Will. And basically the article set forth this idea that the sexual act between a man and a woman actually points us to Christ and the church. All right? And it used very, can we say, descriptive and maybe graphic language trying to prove this point. Well, I originally read it and I didn't give it much thought. I was like, whatever. There was a part of me says, I probably should talk about it, but I don't know. I I was distracted by a million other things. So I did. But the next thing you know, boom, chaos erupted. It was everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. And people had very strong reactions. Some people's reactions were like, 
Guys, get over it. Just because something talks about sex, you don't have to lose your ever-living mind. You guys are too sensitive. And others were like, no, you don't understand. If you take sex and if you describe Christ and the church in this language using sex, this can be very traumatic, maybe for especially for anyone who was ever really sexually abused. Well, wait a minute. No, no, no. Wait, you don't understand. No, you don't understand. You don't understand. Well, the, the controversy got so bad. That not only was the article pulled down, not only was an apology issued, the person who was a part of this apologetics group, <laughs> they resigned and they stepped down. I mean, it, it had serious implications. Now, in the midst of all of this controversy about it, I do what I always tend to do. I try to step back and I, I try to listen to how everyone's approaching it. I try to listen to how everyone's arguing about it, right? And... There, there was a little bit of this, but for me, I, I wanted to kind of step back and go, okay, guys, you're all making some valid points, but isn't this possibly a hermeneutical issue more than it's anything else? How do we handle the biblical passage where Paul likens the husband and the wife relationship to Christ and the church? How far do we take this? What is too far how do we understand this from a hermeneutical principle? But I, as I was listening to it, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I think there's another hermeneutical issue here as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a clip. Well, we're probably going to review the whole episode of a recent uh, Breakpoint uh, radio broadcast slash podcast episode. If you don't subscribe to the Breakpoint podcast, uh, you really should. But this is break, uh, from Breakpoint. It's about a five-minute daily, Monday through Friday uh, look at culture from a theological and biblical perspective. Um, I think it's I think it's usually always very valuable. Sometimes I feel like they kind of just uh, well we could offer criticisms of it, but I mean I guess the main thing it's only five minutes, so no matter what you think, uh, it, it, there it's it doesn't take you much time, so it's always worth it. But they just recently dealt with this whole Twitter outrage and everyone being upset, and they mentioned some specific things. And I want to take some of these things and alike and compare it to what I just talked about. These things we bring to hermeneutics, past understanding, past experience, feelings, emotions, motivations, desires, and theological allegiance. Are you ready? Let's listen to this. And I'm going to, I'm going to be stopping this frequently for us to understand. Here we go. Welcome to Breakpoint, daily look at an ever-changing culture through the lens of unchanging truth the Colson Center. I'm John Stone Street. Years ago, after a college chapel service that featured a sermon about God as our Heavenly Father, the person sitting next to me turned and said bluntly, if God's a father, I want nothing to do with him. I'm going to play that again. I want you to hear that one more time. I know it went by, that was literally 21 seconds. And then, and not, and not even 21 seconds because some, most of that is their little introduction. But listen carefully when he talks about recently at a, I think a chapel service, wherever it was, there was a sermon about God and someone said about God being God being the father and someone made a comment. I'm going to go back. I want you to hear this again. This is very critical. This goes perfectly with what I just said about the things we bring to hermeneutics. Here's someone listening to a sermon, and guess what? They're they're hearing a they're hearing a sermon about God being Father, and immediately they're interpreting it, and their 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 reaction to it is based off one of the things we bring to hermeneutics. You can probably already know which one it's it's bringing in. Here we go. Welcome to Breakpoint, daily look at an ever changing culture through the lens of unchanging truth. 
the Colson Center. I'm John Stone Street. Years ago, after a college chapel service that featured a sermon about God as our Heavenly Father, the person sitting next to me turned and said bluntly, If God's a Father, I want nothing to do with Him. She was speaking, of course, from a place of deep personal pain. She was speaking from a place of deep personal pain. The Bible does speak of God as Father. Well, if you were raised in a home where your father beat you, abused you, molested you, whatever the case may be, hearing that God is your father may be an absolutely horrifying idea. You may be like, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear, I'm kidding. No, I don't want anything to do with God then. If if God is 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 like a father, then I don't want anything to do with that because fathers are messed up human beings because of my, look at it, past experience. Past experience impacting present understanding. All right, I want you to see that because I think this is this is a, a big picture of, of, of hermeneutics. This is an issue pertaining to hermeneutics. Whenever you're studying the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is influencing your interpretive process, your interpretive method? And I'm telling you, these things that I gave you, these five things are, are constantly present with you. I'm going to back this up one more time. Let's listen to this again. Welcome to Breakpoint, daily look at an ever-changing culture through the lens of unchanging truth. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Years ago, after a college chapel service that featured a sermon about God as our Heavenly Father, the person sitting next to me turned and said bluntly, If God's a Father, I want nothing to do with Him. She was speaking, of course, from a place of deep personal pain. However, even the worst experience with an earthly father does not change that God has revealed himself throughout Scripture and specifically in the words of Jesus Christ as our father. I thought of my friend in that chapel service during last week's Christian Twitter maelstrom. On Wednesday, the recently announced Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics at the Gospel Coalition published a book excerpt authored by Pastor Josh Butler. The article described a sacred vision of the physical union of a husband and wife, arguing that not only marriage, but that physical intimacy within marriage is a type of Christ and the church. In the process, he used terms and imagery and made points that, without additional context, seemed shockingly graphic. Almost immediately, the Twitterverse exploded, decrying the article as icky, cringe, even dangerous. Within a day, the critiques of the article, even those that ask legitimate questions about Butler's hermeneutic method or his conclusions, have been completely lost, caught up in an online outrage that had taken on a life of its own. On Sunday, now, so so here here's so he starts with a great example. Someone sitting in a chapel service hears that God is the Father. Their past experiences immediately impacts how they understand that. And but even though that past experience cannot be denied, and you must be sensitive to that past experience, we can't get around the fact that the Bible reveals God as Father. Right? There's just no way to get around that. He, that's how he's viewed. So we have to then go, my past experience, as much as it impacts me, I cannot allow that to now impact the way I perceive and understand and interpret the fact that God is revealed as Father, just as Jesus is revealed as Son. I, I can't allow that to happen. I can't, I can't, I can't allow that to impact me. Right? So I think this is, this is very important, but wait, 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 wait. So then he goes to the article that was written that sparked 
all of the firestorm, right? All of the controversy. Now, this article, I, again, trying to describe uh, basically our uh, the relationship between Christ and the church using basically the physical union between a man and a woman brought in basically sex into our understanding of Christ and the church. And immediately people rejected it. Now, here's the question. One, uh, and this is, and, and I'll just use, I'll, I'll give the question this way for now. Is it possible that our feelings, our emotions, our past experiences with sex could greatly impact how we perceive or understand this? In other words, if you have a horrible past experience with sex, and if your feelings and emotions in regards to sex makes you, it makes you uncomfortable, it feels dirty, it feels bad, right? Then any discussion about sex in relation to Christ, the church, or anything like that is going to bother you dramatically, right? Either because of your past experience or just your feelings and emotions about sex. Look, let's just be honest. The, the sex within the Christian world has always been, I, I, look, as much as the church tries to sometimes fix this, it, it's really weird. Like, like the church goes to two extremes, right? On one hand, I think many within the church, you just immediately feel shame and humiliation when it comes to sex within Christianity. You just do. You, there's almost a shame and humiliation about it, right? If you, if you think about it too much, well, you've committed lust. You're already an adulterer. If you, if you look at a woman with lust, I mean, the scriptures give you these, this, I, these, Concepts that put you in a very, like you feel bad for your desire. You feel bad for your thinking. You you feel bad for the actions you've done and or you feel bad for whatever. So I think that there's a, a level of shame and humiliation connected to sex within Christianity. I don't think there's any way to get around that. So sometimes the church creates that shame and humiliation. And sometimes when the church wants to say, well, we've got to fix this, we need a more healthy outlook on sex. Sometimes we come across as like almost now becoming to flaunt sex in such a way that is cringeworthy or uncomfortable. I don't think anyone can find the proper balance. But when we get to this article about sex, is it possible that some people's past experiences and feelings and emotions greatly impacted how they perceive the article? Possibly. Let's continue. Monday, Gospel Coalition apologized for the article, announced Butler's resignation as a Keller Center fellow, and noted that he would not be speaking at their 2024 conference. Author and blogger Rod Dreher summarized the reaction to the article as, quote, people were horrified that he would taint Jesus with the dirtiness of human sexuality, end quote. And that horror. Now, all he gets, he has to resign. He can't speak. I mean, to me, the whole thing, again, I've, I've stated my position categorically now a number of times. They should have created a special section on their website and have other people write articles reviewing the original article, offering their counterpoints, right? Then they have podcasts on for the Gospel Coalition, then could have created three, four, five podcasts, and they could have had other people give their positions or their view and their interpretation of the, the appropriate passage. They could have had Butler come on to explain his position. Then they could have but Butler talking and having a meaningful rational discussion with some of his strongest critics, and then everyone could look at it all and learn and decide, because I think there's a lot of hermeneutical issues here, right? And I do believe some people, 
sex was involved and because of their past under their past experience and their feelings and emotions, they immediately rejected it. I, I think that there's a little bit to that. And then that one blogger said, because some people think that they, they view sex almost in a dirty way. And because if you view, view sex as a dirty way, any connecting to it with anything to God makes people, people don't like it because sex is viewed as dirty in the minds of many Christians. And when, and they said, well, no, no, I don't believe that. But there is a sense of that is true. So is, is this a situation where that happened? That happened. Past experience, feelings, and emotions got in the way of the hermeneutic. Let's see what else they have to say. I'm going to back this up just a little bit. I'm going to go way back here. Here we go. Keller's resignation as a Keller Center fellow and noted that he would not be speaking at their 2024 conference. Author and blogger Rod Rare summarized the reaction to the article as, quote, people were horrified that he would taint Jesus with the dirtiness of human sexuality, end quote. And that horror took different forms. Some argued that Butler's words were wrong because they could be used to justify abuse. Others argued that, at least in this brief excerpt, that Butler centered the husband's experience and failed to mention the wife's. Most critics, however, simply seemed enraged that the article had spiritualized sex. Now, to be clear, publishing only a short excerpt of an entire book on such a controversial subject wasn't wise. Nor now, please know all these reactions, you can, you can hear some of these things, right? Either they're past understanding. Well, there's no way this could be true because we've never seen it this way before. Past experience, um, feelings and emotions, motivation and desire, whatever the case may be, maybe their own theological allegiance won't allow. All, all these things demonstrate some of these things that we bring to hermeneutics and everyone, everyone's reaction to the article demonstrated this. That's why I think instead of deleting the article, there needed to be further discussion because it brings up all of these hermeneutical issues. All right. But let, let's, let's continue. Now, Remember, I said there's five things, in a sense, we bring to the Bible, past understanding, past experience, feelings and emotions, motivations and desires and allegiance. There is a sixth one that I haven't mentioned yet. There's a sixth one that I haven't mentioned yet, and I'm saving it for the end. All right, let's, let's just continue here. Or was the use in the excerpt of explicit sexual imagery. Still, like my wounded friend who could not grasp the idea that a father, even God himself, could possibly be loving or good, it quickly became clear in the critiques that so many evangelicals cannot imagine that sex is something good, created by God to both serve his purposes for humanity and to also point us to an even greater spiritual intimacy with himself. Now, that reaction on one hand is fully understandable. After all, so many today have only known sexuality as twisted, corrupted, and weaponized. Reading experiences and assumptions into Butler's own words, many concluded that he was employing spiritual language in order to argue that sex should primarily serve the interests of men who could do with women as they pleased, though Butler said nothing of the kind. God's very first description of his image bearers included that they were male and female. His first commands to Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. The rest of Scripture presents imagery that connects the relationship between husband and wife, including the physical relationship, with the relationship that God has with his people and Christ has with the church. Many church fathers point out the significance of the human body as well as the significance of the physical marital act. 
In fact, throughout church history, one would be hard-pressed to find a theologian who didn't think that the sexual imagery in Scripture pointed to Christ and His church. Scripture clearly describes physically intimate relationships, both married and illicit unions, as being morally weighty in and of themselves, and also as ways of understanding God's relationship with His people. In his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, theologian and author Christopher West argues that the human body, male and female, should be thought of as a form of revelation by which God makes Himself known. And since we're made in God's image, humans reveal God in ways unique from the rest of creation. Thus, as West writes, quote, authentic sexual love becomes an icon, an earthly image of the inner life of the Trinity, end quote. And in that same paragraph, West quotes Tim Keller, that, quote, sex is sacred because it is an analogy of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the life of the Trinity. A husband's desire for his wife can be viewed as generous, which was Butler's term, just as a woman's response can be seen as hospitable, also Butler's term. It would be wrong to reduce Christ's relationship with his church, not to mention the physical act between a married couple itself, to only those categories. And it would have been more helpful had more context been given for the excerpt. His words certainly could have been more clear. But the fact that so many found them outrageous and unthinkable speaks volumes about the state of the evangelical imagination. Simply put, Scripture uses sexual imagery to describe divine realities. It's tragic to only think of sex in terms of abuse or exploitation, or even, at best, self-serving pleasure, rather than as something created by God in order to reveal Himself to us. Earth, poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, is crammed full of heaven, and every bush is on fire with God. Sex, like all of life, belongs to God. It was created to serve His purposes, and is redeemed to those purposes through Christ. Especially today, in this very secular moment, we should be willing to consider what those sacred purposes truly are. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone. Now that, that, that comes to almost defending the article, which will outrage people even more. So no, this, this controversy doesn't seem to be going away. But what I want you to realize is that maybe a lot of what's happened here is that people are bringing things to this entire discussion and they're bringing basically as I said, past understanding, past experience, feelings and emotions, motivation and desires, and theological allegiance to the discussion, and therefore nobody can see it beyond whatever they're bringing to the particular text. Now, we, we, we all know, and we, we can look at it ourselves, we all know the text that's being spoken of here, all right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Right? In other words, this union between the man and the woman is supposed to point to Christ and the church. Now, how far? Now, the question is next, how far do you take this? Now, that, that right there still took it pretty far, that our bodies are a revelation of God, that, that sex points us to, to God. Like, like we, those are strong, strong statements, and we could ask ourselves, is that, is that are true or not? A lot of this comes into play even when you try to interpret, say, the book of Song of Solomon. Do I see the Song of Solomon as simply a celebration of physical sexuality? Or do I try to go through everything in the Song of Solomon and go, wait, this points to Christ in the church. Now, I've demonstrated this before in preaching 
that you can do that at, at the very beginning of the Song of Solomon, the very begin, beginning of it, you can kind of pull this off and create like this really amazing kind of sermon where you're like, see, oh, this is a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. But the further you get into the book, to me, it seems to fall completely apart and it seems forced. And to be honest, it seems a little, it makes it a little uncomfortable to me. All right. But I mean, you know, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth for thy love is better than wine. Now you can say, okay, well, God's love is better than, than, than wine or earthly pleasure. You, you, you can try to make it work, but as you go further and further into the song of Solomon, at some point it just starts becoming, Ugh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Should we just read the song of Solomon in a very literal way? Hey, this is about a man and a woman. This is about physical love, uh, about physical sexuality, and it can be celebrated and it's not dirty. Or do we have to try to spiritualize it so it feels less yucky to the evangelical mind. This has profound impact on how we view this. When we look at that passage in Ephesians, what do we do? So here, here's what I want you to consider. Not only do we bring our past understanding, our past experience, our feelings and emotions, our motivations and desires and a theological allegiance. This is what, this is very important. We also bring, are you ready? We bring our own biblical interpretation method. Whether we like it or not, we bring our own hermeneutics. We bring our own biblical interpretation method to to the text. We, we can deny this all day, but we do. People will bring their own, and in many cases, they won't even be consistent with it. But whether we like it or not, these are the things we bring to the text. Our past understanding, our past experience, our feelings and emotions, our motivations and desires, our theological allegiance, and our own biblical interpretation method or our own biblical interpretive method. And we have to realize that so much of the time we are bringing all of this and imposing it on the text. We sometimes we can't even get to the actual text because of all of this. So when you have all of this going on about, wait a minute, wait a minute. All right. So what does, does sex point us to Jesus? Do, do we, how do we, how far do we take this? Well, our own biblical interpretive methods are going to come into play. Let me consider a different article here just to show you kind of, it goes kind of a somewhat in a different perspective. All right. This article is entitled, Don't Go Beyond What Is Written. Oh, no, wait a minute. This is getting, this is bringing in an interpretive principle, right? Okay. Hey, guys, 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 we've got these texts like the Song of Solomon. We've got this text like Ephesians. All right. The man and woman, they're going to come together and be one flesh. This points to Christ in the church. Okay. Now, how far can we go beyond those words? How far do we go beyond it? Now, this brings in your own personal biblical interpretive method, right? Let's see what they say here. Let's see what they have to say. The scriptures are fully sufficient to guide us to salvation, the worship of God and the godly life. We do not need to supplement scripture with human traditions or philosophy as if it were incomplete. However, it is important to understand that sola scriptura does not demand a simple kind of biblicalism. Believing nothing but what individual texts explicitly teach as if there were, as if that were ever actually possible 
as the Westminster Confession of Faith describes, and I quote um, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. In that sense, as we read Scripture, explain Scripture, synthesize the teachings of Scripture, and apply Scripture, we we go beyond the words of the individual text. We need to pull together what is expressly set down in Scripture and then drawing out what may be a good and necessary consequence, but deduced from Scripture. But herein lies the risk. It is very easy in the process of doing theology to run afoul of one possible interpretation of the maxim, do not go beyond what is written. For example, the confession recognizes that not all scripture is equally clear in its details. And so those parts which are more mysterious should be understood in light of those which are more plain. But the issue is do not go beyond what is written. However, there's a sense that in some ways we do, right? Because we take the scriptures and we have to go, okay, all right, well, Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna apply it here. We're gonna do, and sometimes we have to kind of go a little bit beyond what's there. But at the same time, we've got to be careful not to really violate that principle too much, which is don't go beyond what is written. So when it comes to sex as pointing to Christ or pointing to Christ in the church, pointing us to the creator, how, like Song of Solomon is a good example. How far do we go? Do we go beyond the actual words that are used to turn it into, this is a beautiful picture of Christ and the church? Or do we say, no, 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 no. This is about celebrating the physical union between a man and a woman. How far do we take it? How far? This is especially true for language about God. The scriptures use human language and human concepts to help us understand God. However, God the Father is neither biologically male, nor is he, his relationship to God the Son anywhere near human procreation. I think that's very important. Listen to this again. When we talk about God, right, the Bible uses human language and concepts to help us understand God. However, this is true. God the Father is neither biologically male, nor is his relationship to God the Son anywhere near human procreation. It's, 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 it's very, we got to be very careful. Even though this, this human language is used to describe God, we don't go so far to basically reduce God to simply a human, right? Understanding it in very human terms. This is the mistake that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints makes, teaching that Christ is the actual progeny of Father God. Um, or some discussions about the persons of the Trinity rely too heavily on human social relationships and so risk implying that each person of the Trinity were a God in community with the others. Even descri descriptions of God's love or grief are distinct from the human experience of emotions, which is tied to our uniquely human psychosomatic existence. As we handle any part of God's word, and especially those parts which speak about God himself, we need to be careful not to stray too far from that which God has said. We need to be very, very, very 
very confident that we are proceeding from good and necessary consequence. Don't go beyond what the text actually says. Sometimes when the text doesn't seem to be clear, we think that we need to clarify it. When the text doesn't seem to be clear, we want to fill in the details. So we come to this idea, okay, a man and a woman, they leave father and mother and they come together and they're united as one flesh. Okay. Oh, that's sex. That's sex. Okay. So we immediately start thinking sex. We, we got to explain it, right? We got we to really fill in the details. Okay, wait, wait. This points to Christ and the church. All right, so now we're going to take this sexual act and we're going to describe Christ basically almost in a illustrative way as having sex with the church. Okay, now, did, did we just go way, 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 way too far? They go on to say this. This is true of the parts of God's word where his relationship to his people is described as or likened to marriage. This typology should not be pressed too far. We should be careful. We should, should carefully remain within the bounds of that, what scripture says, lest we distort both our views of marriage and our view of God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, the sexual union is equated to union with Christ, but the point of similarity is a union leading to exclusivity and a dutiful faithfulness. It is not to draw particular details of comparison between sexual intercourse and union with Christ. Again, Ephesians 5, the point of topology is not actually marriage per se, let alone sexual intercourse in particular, but being one body as husband and wife become one flesh, so the church is Christ's body. Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and cared for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as, as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. The Apostle Paul merges the love command with the typology of Adam, Christ, with a typology of body, one flesh, to urge husbands to care for their wives. The application of the typology is the duty of husbands to selfless love and care for their wives, both learning from and imperfectly pointing to the love of Christ to the church. When Teresa of Avila's mystic visions or the Puritan spiritual interpretation of the Song of Songs, or Josh Butler's recent article, now removed from the site, begin to draw out too much spiritual significance from erotic love, and even the act of making love, they too easily go beyond what is written. When such examples impute too much spiritual significance to erotic love, they go beyond God's revelation in a way that misrepresents both God and sexuality. Now, that and the Puritans did completely spiritually interpret Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. I mean, big time. 
And that, that's what I'm talking about. So, and the, and, and so when we, we have these passages, we can't go beyond what is written. How far do we take an analogy? How far do we take an illustration? This is the, some of the issues I raised from the very beginning of this controversy that I thought this was a hermeneutical issue. Everyone's over here fighting and getting upset about sex. And I'm like, hermeneutics. But I can understand why some people would get upset about sex because of their past experiences. Because they're feelings and emotions. Maybe because of motivations and desires. Whatever. The, maybe their theological allegiance. Maybe because of past understanding. But at some point we have to realize that we also bring our own biblical interpretations to the text. And those different interpretational methods, are we, we, we bring our own biblical interpretive methods to the text. This has profound impact on how we see and what we see, which leads to the never-ending source of disagreement. So this whole issue surrounding this infamous article now that that has been removed, again, I don't know why they removed it. Removing it has not stopped the controversy. I I don't know when Christians ever uh, deleting something and... Just let it stay, and then we deal with it. But okay, that, I, I'm I'm so bothered by the fact the way they del- they deleted it. Should have left it and said, "Let's have a conversation." It would have been so much more beneficial because now we're not being able to really dig into some of these hermeneutical issues. They go on to say this. They go on to say this. This is the last paragraph. Theological thinking is good. Amen. It's necessary and important work. Amen. It honors God and his word as it seeks to understand scripture's meaning and significance. Amen. However, theology is a perilous business. The insights of Christian tradition and the discernment and critique of fellow believers today are both valuable safeguards for us as we seek to do theology and biblical interpretation. For we must go about the task with reverence, caution, and diligence, so that even as we draw out the good and necessary consequences, we do not go beyond what is written and drift too far into mere human speculation. Now, I do believe there's danger in doing theology. Now, I believe we need to embrace the danger. I need, I believe we need to embrace the fear and we have to sometimes struggle through it. See, I think that, that the fact that this person wrote this article, this book, and everyone's now losing their minds, I, I think is, it demonstrates one of the major problems with Bible interpretation within Christendom and within the church. Because the church, the church immediately The church doesn't like to explore and to struggle. The church is like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. No, stop. We're not going to put up with that. And sometimes I wish the church would be more willing to go, okay, wait, wait, wait. I disagree, but let's struggle through this. Okay, what are you trying to say? Can you clarify what you're trying to say? You still may finish the discussion and go, I disagree. But Christians get defensive whenever they hear something that goes against their theological allegiance. They just get mad. They get frustrated. They immediately lash out. They bow up. They want to argue. I, look, I, I, if, if you the listen to the way I preach and teach, you've heard some of this sometimes happen in my own church. I love to challenge and call into question certain theological ideas. 
And what I'm trying to do is spark thinking and study and investigation. And sometimes you'll hear someone, they'll just immediately get defensive and want to start defending a position. I'm like, you're missing the whole point. Let's struggle through this. We may come out on the other side and I completely agree with you. Let the process run its course and see where we end up. Right? So I just want you to realize that sex and hermeneutics, this whole controversy, gives us an opportunity to hit pause and not hop on social media yelling and screaming about sex and all of that. I think it causes us to stop and go, huh. When it comes to understanding and interpreting things, my past understanding has a way to show up in the present. And that could blind me from a present understanding. My past experience could greatly impact how I see this. Because you had, look, you tell me God is a father or God is, in a sense, like a parent. I've got major issues with that. But I can't allow my past experience to impact my present understanding. I've got to allow the text to take me to that understanding. Number three, feelings and emotions. I can't let what I feel, my emotions impact what's in the text. Over and over and over, what I find is the text goes against my feelings and emotions. I can't allow my feelings and emotions to change the text. My motivations and desires. Almost 100% the Bible goes against my motivations and desires because I have desires that goes against scripture. I, look, I will acknowledge this is what the scriptures say because my, I'm not going to let my motivations and desire to, say, to change the scriptures. I still may have those motivations and desires. I still may act upon them and commit sin, but I'm at least going to at least say I, the scriptures still condemn what I did. I'm not going to excuse it. Theological allegiance. I'm not going to allow because I'm on whatever team I'm on. I don't care what the team says. I don't care if the team gets mad at me. I don't care. I don't care. You get mad at me because I don't go along with your little theological team. So what? Because we can't get anywhere when we allow theological teams to control us. We have to dig into the text and struggle through it. But we all have to realize we bring our own biblical interpretive method to the text. And that can create major problems. There we go. I'm just going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. Because I thought that would add to this never-ending controversy where I've now seen probably, I probably have seen 40 articles, who knows how many different Christian podcasts, all addressing the sex article. Did you see the sex article? And we do have to ask ourselves, do Christians have really a major sex problem with how we view sex? That we either view it dirty or we view it like, do we think we have a right understanding of it? I think it's something to consider. All right, but you can email me your thoughts about this entire situation. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Well, that is your today's focus. There's a lot there to focus on. That is your today's focus. Remember, this is designed to be 15 minutes long, even though I've gone an hour. This is designed to say, hey guys, here's what's going on. 
Let's focus on it today and talk about it. So I've given you that to focus on. Now you've got all day to talk about it. Just share some of your conversations with me. I like being a part of the conversation. Newsif at yahoo.com. That is your today's focus for Saturday, March the 11th, 2023.